All right, well, good morning. As Maury said, we've been uh, doing a two-week series here, looking at what it means for us as followers of Christ to do justice and love mercy. So today, I'm excited. As Morgan said, I'm going to be telling some stories. We've got some videos we're going to be showing to kind of put on display of, of, of what we see God doing in and through our church in the area of not just doing justice, but mainly today focusing on loving mercy. So let's pray, and we're going to be jumping into James chapter 1 today. So Father, we we're delighted to be in your presence today. God, as we said at the top of our time together, there's no place that we would rather be than in your presence. So God, I'm asking that you would come and, and be with us. Would you open up our hearts to your word today, that it would begin to transform and confront and, and, and change the very essence of who we are as a people. It might be an accurate and proper reflection of your goodness and your glory and of your mercy to the world around us. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, James chapter 1, verse 22 through 27 is where we'll be spending our time today. It says this, But be doers of the word, and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he's like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he was like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, Being no hearer who forgets but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. If anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God, the Father, is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction, to keep oneself unstained from the world. Now as we look at this passage today and as I share some some stories that are really near and dear to my heart, I want to Look at how we as a church are trying to do the Word of God. And as we do that, I want to look at three aspects of mercy today. Number one, what it is. Number two, what mercy does. And number three, who mercy is for. So first, what mercy is. I would define mercy this way. Mercy is sacrificial love put into action. Now let me explain why I define it this way. You see, James is writing in this passage to the very first generation of Christians immediately following the murder of Stephen, the very first Christian martyr. And following the murder of Stephen, the the church began to experience immense persecution. If you want some reference, go read Acts chapter 7 through 9, and you'll see exactly what's going on at the time period that James is writing this letter. It's believed to be the, the very earliest epistle in the New Testament. And as they begin to, to, to experience this, this persecution, these Christians at the hands of, of wealthy Jewish neighbors were losing their jobs, they were losing their homes, they were entering into really severe poverty. And that, that poverty and persecution began to produce in them a fear in their hearts that turned them from, from a life of mercy and generosity. I mean, remember, these are the same Christians that we all admire and want to emulate out of Acts chapter 2, who were selling their possessions, giving to any who had need. Now James is writing into this same group of Christians and saying, hey, you're, you're double-talking, you're gossiping, you're backbiting, you're speaking ill of one another, and your religion is worthless. Because this fear had taken them from a life of mercy and generosity to a life of self-centeredness and self-preservation. In fact, James goes on in, verse, in, in chapter 2 and he talks about, he says, listen, this, this uh, preferential treatment that you're showing to the, the wealthy Jews, remember, these are the same Jews that are dragging you into court and suing you. 
And yet you're showing them preferential treatment over your Christian brothers and sisters. And why? Because the persecution, like many times when difficulties come into our lives, begins to turn our focus inwardly. And we begin to seek to to save ourselves, to preserve ourselves, to live for ourselves. And James steps into this mess to remind them and us that this self-centered self-preservation is not what the heart of the gospel is all about. He says that they've forgotten what the gospel has revealed to their own hearts. And he compares it into looking into a mirror. Now, from the looks of things this morning, it appears that every person in this room addressed the issues that the mirror revealed to them this morning. Right? But could you imagine if, if like James is saying, we had looked in the mirror when we got up this morning... And then walked away and forgot what we had seen. Not good, right? I, we'd all be sitting here with sleepy in our eyes, right? Bedhead hair all a mess. That pimple that seemingly popped up out of nowhere on your forehead while you were sleeping, right? The dry, white, crusty stuff in the corners of your mouth. I mean, what is that? Right? But fortunately, I'm not seeing any of that today. Because you looked in a mirror, it revealed some ugliness... And you said, oh, I better fix that. And James is saying to them and to us that that is how the gospel works or ought to work in our lives. That when we peer into the gospel, it reflects back the ugliness of our souls and our hearts. And that we're supposed to let the weight of that gospel, of that truth, bear down on us and address the pride, the fear, the insecurities, the self-centeredness that we see in our hearts. And if we don't, if we peer into the gospel and then walk away and forget of what it has revealed to us, James is saying that spiritually we have bedhead. That spiritually we've got whiteheads on our face. And yes, I know that's disgusting and it was intended to be, so you'll remember it next week. But we may think we look good to God and to the world around us because of our religious behavior. But James is saying, oh, you look a mess. And you're not fooling anybody but yourself. See, what the issues James is bringing up here with his first century Christians, the gospel is revealing in their hearts to these early believers this self-centered, self-preservation way of living. The primary concern had become whatever would advance their own reputation, what would keep them from experiencing the persecution they've been experiencing. And James' advice to them is to do the gospel and not just hear the gospel. Look at how James says that takes place. In verse 27, he says, Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction." To keep oneself unstained from the world. Now, the stain that James is referring to here is the putting of your own needs, your comfort, your security, your reputation, above and beyond the needs of others. And the antidote that he gives us, the, the spiritual oxyclean, if you will, that removes that stain, is what James calls pure and undefiled religion. Now, this word religion in the, in the Greek is thriskaya. It literally means worship or reverence. So when James says pure and undefiled religion, he's not talking about the rituals and the jumping through the hoops that you and I envision of trying to put God in our debt so that he'll bless us for what we've done. It's true, pure worship 
a life devoted to the glory of God. And James says that the, the pure form of that is to visit widows and orphans in their affliction. Now, James, and he says to, to visit, this word is episkoptomai. Easy to say. It literally means to look after, to take care of, to be present with. So when he says to visit widows and orphans in their affliction, he's not just saying to, to, to make a donation, to give them a handout. He's saying to enter into the strife, the pain, and the suffering, the affliction that they're experiencing, to come alongside them, to tend to them, to care for them. Now, why is that pure and undefiled worship in the eyes of God? Because it is sacrificial love put into action. It is the very pursuit of loving mercy. You see, in first century Middle Eastern culture, widows and orphans are the very bottom rung of society. They literally had nothing to offer you in return for any service you gave them. Like to, to visit them, to care for them and their affliction was to lift them up at your own expense, both financially and socially. It was to love them unconditionally. Or another way of putting it, it was to love them the way Christ has loved you. And that, my friends, is why it's pure and undefiled in the eyes of God. Because it is the most accurate reflection of who God is and what God has done for us in Christ. I'll put it this way. Mercy is loving when it is most difficult and least deserved. So that's what mercy is. Now to give you an understanding of what mercy does, I want to tell you a little story about two women, a group of children, and how God has used this church in the lives of both. In 2007, God led us in this church at Mosaic to a city called San Luis Potosí, Mexico, where we met two ladies named Tonita and Lupita. Tonita and Lupita were successful real estate partners in a business that they own. They had very comfortable lives, nice homes, nice cars, enough money to, 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 to get around and do what they pleased. And life was pretty good for them, except for the gnawing reality that they were faced with on a daily basis on their morning commute. See, every morning they would get in their cars and they would drive to the office and they would drive by children as young as four and five years old eating food out of trash cans, having to take care of one another because their parents were out doing drugs, prostituting, in prison. I mean, they had been functionally abandoned. And Tonita and Lupita were convicted by this. Now, not, not by guilt, but by love, by a desire to show mercy. See, it wasn't just enough for them to, to not do these children harm. It wasn't just enough even to just pray that God might change their situation. No, these women, these women loved mercy. And moved by the heart of the gospel, they sold their business, sold their homes, sold their cars, and together with Lupita's husband, Marco, pulled together their resources and began renting out some houses in a neighborhood near where these children were living. They took these children in and, and loved them, got them off the streets, took them into their homes and into their hearts. The home is called Casa Viado, and has been loving children like this for the past 10 years. And Tonita and Lupita's love for mercy has impacted the lives of many others, including women who are young, talented, gifted, brilliant, and beautiful, who have decided out of conviction of mercy, out of a love for the gospel, to dedicate their lives to being 
24 hours a, a day, seven days a week, moms to care for these children. Paid nothing for their efforts. See, eight years ago, God crossed our paths with Tonita and Lapita and these amazing women. And their love for mercy inspired us as well. Our first trip to San Luis Potosí was in 2007. And that initial trip, we mostly just did painting and projects around the homes and, and just kind of helping their facilities out because these women are protective of these children, rightfully so. They're trying to figure out what's this group of Americans wanting to come and do with our orphanage and these, these children. But what happened was over the, those first couple of years, they began to see in us the same heart that we saw in them, a love for mercy. And trust was developed and trust was built. And today the relationship between Mosaic Church and Casa Vallado is much, much more like a family than it is organizations partnering with one another. But you can go look at the table in the lobby in a minute when we dismiss from here, and you'll see, you'll see letters on there. The children referring to us as mom and dad, referring to us as brother and sister, inviting us to come to, to, to sit in as the role of father, their quinceaneras, when they turn 15 years old. Mercy has begun to triumph. In 2008, under the brilliant idea of Jamie Smith, we launched what's called the Vallejo Project, which is a sponsorship program and pen pal program that provides 90% of the operating budget of Casa Vallado. And that project, that effort, that focus of what God has called us to, the desire for us to get outside of ourselves, outside of our comfort, outside of our conveniences, and to love mercy. See, mercy takes responsibility for those who are in need. The amazing thing is this. Loving mercy is a force that ripples and resonates and never stops impacting the hearts of others. See, through our involvement at Casa Vallado, a local church in San Luis called Samia de Vida heard about what we were doing in their own city, and Pastor Rahelio caught the vision of, of what was going on there and began partnering with us in 2011. He began sending high school and college students over with us on our trips to come, come help us out with our VBSs with the kids and with the projects of the kids. Some of the families of Samia DeVita began hosting monthly breakfasts at the, at the orphanage to treat the kids and the moms to just kind of a Saturday morning fun time. In our absence, in between our trips, some of these students and families have been going over to Casa Vallado to visit the children and to give the moms relief and let them have some time away from time to time. This past trip... Uh, Pastor Rahelio actually received an offering to help us with what we're doing at Casa Vallado and received over 2,000 pesos, which enabled us to, to put up these kitchen cabinets and countertops. You can see the before picture on the left there, the after picture on the right. That's Gabby, one of the moms, standing there. And when Pastor Armando and Robert Cornwellji set up that kitchen and, and they was finished and they stepped away, Gabby walked in and almost fell to her knees. Because she cannot believe what God had provided. And that was at the hands of Samia David and the offering that they had received. But as amazing as that is, mercy continues to ripple. This pastor, we also met a man named Juan Pablo. And Juan Pablo came up to Pastor Armando and myself at Sunday worship with Samia Davida, And he wanted to tell us his story. So Juan Pablo has a daughter named Paula. A Paula was one of the students that got involved with us back in 2011 at the age of 15. She began coming over and helping us on our trips and visiting the kids when we're not there. 
Juan Pablo was not a Christian at the time. He just, had just recently gotten saved when we met him. But what he saw in his daughter as she got involved in Semilla de Vida, as she came to faith in Christ, as she began serving at Casa Vallado alongside of us, loving mercy gripped her heart. And she fell in love with these children. And she would come home from, from youth group and come home from Casa Vallado just energized and renewed and overflowing with the mercy of God. And Juan Pablo couldn't help but notice the transformation that took place in his daughter. Well, a little over three months ago, Paula came down with a very rare lung infection. And within three weeks, had passed away. The morning that she passed away, one of the last things she did is she wrote a note to her father. On that note, it said, Dad, my only wish is that you would get involved with the church and come to know the mercy of Christ as I have. So Juan Pablo started going to Semilla de Vida. Pastor Rogelio preaching the gospel, moved on Juan Pablo's heart. He came to faith in Christ. And a couple of Sundays ago, he came up to Pastor Armando and myself, pulled out the note from his wallet, handed it to us, told us this story, and said, I want to love mercy. I want to continue in my daughter's pursuit of loving these children. Anything you need, whatever I can do, you let me know. Juan Pablo happens to be a master electrician and plumber which is exactly what we needed at those homes. Yeah, you can clap for that. See, mercy is contagious. Another young man from Samia de Vida named Cesar, a good friend of ours who has begun helping us at Casa Viado. He's a welder and works with metal, and so he's been fixing all sorts of stuff that none of us have the skill or knowledge to fix. Well, in response to what he has seen God doing and the mercy of Christ coming and being put on display through our trips and our interaction with their city and their church there, Cesar said, hey, I want to I treat you guys. I want to bless you guys on this next trip. And I want to take you to a city named Lyon. It's about two and a half hours outside of San Luis Potosí. It's the leather capital of, of Mexico. They have all sorts of cool shopping and sightseeing, and those kind of things. So we said, all right, cool. It sounds great. We'll go. We'll, we'll, go, we'll go check it out. Right? And so we... We begin to prepare for our trip, and Pastor Armando, who's the pastor of our Spanish ministry here, happens to mention to his, the Spanish congregation that we're going to be going to Lyon on our next trip. Well, it just so happens there's uh, some grown adult siblings in our, that come to our Spanish service in the afternoon, part of this church, who grew up and lived in Lyon. They came to faith through this church, through people demonstrating the mercy of Christ, building with them relationally. They came to faith in Christ. They came to Pastor Armando and said, hey, my dad and mom and siblings live in Lyon. You ought to drop in and say hi to them when you're there. Well, it turns out their dad was not very happy with them coming to faith in Jesus. Not a religious family, not a, not a Catholic family like you would expect in Mexico. Super, very superstitious, but not religious in any way. And so Pastor Armando says, okay, cool, we'll go, we'll go visit, and I'll say hi to the dad and introduce myself to him, let him know that his, his kids are in good hands, so we make our way up to Lyon. Uh, Manuel comes and meets us out at the shops and introduces himself, and, and of course, we're all thinking we're going to drop in a restaurant somewhere nearby to have lunch. But Manuel, I wanted to honor us and bless us, and I want to take you to my house. And so we, we make our way over to Manuel's house. We've got some pictures of the house here. So that's the house. I mean, literally a tin roof held up by some wood slats, some brick walls that are about to fall apart. 
but a very loving, beautiful, honoring family. See, all the men in the family work at the shoe factories in Lyon. And the family has recently been through some intense financial difficulties. And the house is literally falling apart around them. But out of an attempt to honor us and to, to want to treat us to lunch and brought us into the home, we had pozole verde. If any of y'all ever had that, you know how amazing it was straight from the hand of God. It was amazing. But we walk into this house, and, and I just got to be honest with you, I wasn't feeling well that day, starting to get a little bit of a headache. I walk in, and man, I just, I, I was in my flesh. And I looked at the state of the house, the condition that it was in, and, and began to wonder, man, God, why have you brought us here? I mean, I'm, I'm thinking this is just a drop-in visit. We're here to say hey to a, a family who has kids that go to our church, and we're going to shake hands, have a good time, and we're going to be on our way. I begin to wonder, God, why would you bring us to, to this place? I, literally, I begin to, to be concerned for the health of our team as they offered us water and soup. I'm wondering, where's, where's this come from? Right? How's this going to affect our bodies? I mean, it's real, real fears here, right? And as we hang out, we sit, one of the first things we notice when we walk into the home is that one of Manuel's granddaughters is, uh, is handicapped. It appeared like she maybe had cerebral palsy or something like that. And, uh, and definitely um, uh, delayed in her, in her development. But as soon as we walked in the room, I'll never forget this. Janice Crenwelge, she's sitting in the back back there. She saw this little girl and made a beeline for her. Scooped her up in her arms. Loved her. And I'm telling you, man, the, the smile on this little girl's face could not have been any bigger. And the sense of relief on the face of the mom. Of just seeing the compassion of Janice scoop her girl up in her arms and demonstrate loving mercy to her. It instantly changed the atmosphere of the room. Sulamita, Michelle, Robert, our whole team, we stepped into that, with the exception of me, but everyone stepped into that home and just began, just ignored the surroundings, ignored the environment, said, man, God has called us here for some purpose. We don't know what, but we're going to love, we're going to serve, we're going to be here. And the atmosphere began to shift. And God began to thump me upside my head and rebuke me, thankfully. We go and we sit down for lunch. They only have a table with six chairs, so the family stands while the six of us sit down to eat. Humbling. We eat the pasole verde, of course, prayed blessing over it. Lord, keep it from making us sick. None of us got sick, thankfully. But as we're eating and we're engaging in conversation, Armando leans over and says, Oh, by the way, I just found out no one here knows Jesus. And suddenly, it became clear that God had orchestrated way more than just a get-to-know-you luncheon. He had orchestrated an opportunity for us to demonstrate the loving mercy of Christ. And so we finish eating. The family sits down and eat. I say, Pastor Mano, when they're they're done eating, let's, let's sit down with them. Let's talk with them. Let's see if God might just open a door for the loving mercy of Christ to enter in. Following that, God gave us some prophetic words for the family. Yeah, after demonstrating the gospel, okay, what was happening there was, so after demonstrating the gospel, we sat down and had the opportunity to proclaim the gospel, to explain what Jesus had come to do, what the mercy of God was all about, what, how sin had separated us, how we deserved God's wrath, but that God instead had extended loving mercy to us and not only cleaned us up, but adopted us in as sons and daughters and the entire family. Convicted by the Holy Spirit, prayed to receive Christ at the, at, the, at the dinner table right there. I mean, it was, and I remember walking out of the home and thinking, 
man, I feel like we just experienced a modern-day Cornelius and his family out of Acts chapter 10, if you're familiar with that. Peter praying, and cheat drops. God says, don't call unclean what I've called clean. And the man shows up, takes him to Cornelius' house, preaches the gospel, the entire family gets saved. As I walked out of there, one of the things, God, I, I was Peter. No, Lord, this house is unclean. This food is unclean, right? Then the mercy of God invaded my space. The mercy of God overwhelmed my heart. And following that, the Holy Spirit, our Manuel was very kind of apologetically asking for forgiveness for the state of his house, or his shack, as he called it. And in a moment, the Holy Spirit spoke to me, again, thumped me upside my head, hit me in my chest, wherever everyone wants to say, and he very clearly said, any place where the presence of the king dwells is a castle, not a shack. See, that is what mercy does. Mercy sees past the inconveniences. It sees past the threats. It sees past the things that, that, that we tend to shrink back. It sees past self-preservation. It says, oh God, with what you've done for me, how could I withhold that from anyone? See, that is what mercy does. It invades our lives when we least expect it. It upends the plans that we've made. It costs us our comforts and our conveniences, even our lives sometimes. But oh, it is so worth it. When we left that house, I mean, nothing else of that sightseeing day mattered to me. But knowing the mercy of God had invaded that family and that home. And you know why? Because mercy connects you to the heart of God in a way that nothing else can. You see, the essence of mercy is that the one who has everything to lose gives to the one who has nothing to offer. See, mercy loves without expecting anything in return. It seeks to enter into the pain and suffering and the needs of another. It's not merely to be sympathetic, but to actually come alongside of and shoulder the burdens of those who are in need. See, mercy asks, what do you need rather than what's in it for me? And this is why loving mercy is the kind of worship that's pure and undefiled in the eyes of God. Because it points us to His glory. I've seen in the gospel. It seeks to take what's broken and put it back together again to redeem what's been lost. See, it's the heart of God because Jesus, the King of the universe who had everything, came in the flesh to enter into our world, our struggles, our mess. He ate our food. He spoke our language. He took our place by living the life we could not live, bore our burden on the cross, stood in the gap by dying the death that we should have died, and then rose again to conquer sin and death and hell. Not just so we could go to some place called heaven someday, so that heaven could come back to us today, so that the brokenness and the fractured parts of our reality might begin to get put back together. You see, the mercy of God begins to reconstitute our hearts and make us once again what He's always intended us to be. That is the mercy. He gave all He had to us, a people who have nothing to offer. To redeem us and put things back the way God intended them to be. Now, not completely, no. One day that will come when he returns. But in little ways, in small pieces, the gospel begins to reconstitute our hearts and our world. To make us new creations from the inside out. It turns us from a people who are consumed with our own needs. To a people consumed with the needs of others. 
to a people who seek to glorify and reflect God's image above all else to make us a people who love mercy. So that's what mercy is, and that's what mercy does. Which brings us to our last aspect this morning. Who is mercy for? And this is where it gets a little tricky. See, there's probably not a single person in this room, Christian or non-Christian, who would, who would say that what I'm talking about, the stories I'm telling are bad. Like, no one in here is going, ah, that's horrible. I don't want to live that kind of life. Even if you're not a Christian, you would look at that and say, yeah, that's good. That's right. That's how we ought to live. The problem is this. You can never show true mercy to others unless you have received true mercy yourself. You can never love someone unconditionally unless you've been loved unconditionally first. And the most truly unconditional love is when a God who has nothing he needs willingly lays down his life for you, a person who has nothing to give. It's only when you understand that the most important being in the entire universe has loved you, affirmed you, adopted you, and made you his own, that you can see the world the way he sees it, a broken mess in need of redemption. And it's only out of that love, that mercy, that you can freely give everything that you have to meet the needs of others without expecting anything in return. But who is that mercy extended to? How do we obtain it? Well, Jesus himself said, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now, what does it mean to be poor? Well, to be poor is to lack the resources necessary to provide for yourself. It's to be in need of something that you do not possess. So, what does it mean to be poor in spirit then? It means that you and I lack the necessary means to meet our spiritual needs. And therefore, that provision has to come from something or someone outside of ourselves. In other words, the only requirement to receive mercy is to recognize your need for it. All you need is need. Don't you see how God has designed this? That we are the abandoned children eating out of the dumpster. We are the father who can't bring his daughter back from death. We are the broken down, dilapidated home, desperately in need of renovation, in need of the presence of the king to come in and make us beautiful again. We are in need of that mercy. And until you and I realize that, until we can accurately see how truly desperate and broken we are because of our sin, not only will we not receive God's mercy, We can never truly live a life that loves mercy. Have you received that mercy today? Have you come to a place of recognizing your own spiritual poverty? Have you seen the brokenness of your own heart that sin has produced? That you're wanting God's things more than wanting God himself has separated you from him and created a debt that you and I could never repay? Oh, I hope, I hope that you have. And if you haven't, I hope today that you do. Because you are who God's mercy is for. Us, the spiritually impoverished, the ones who are broken and have nothing to offer, we are the ones who God's mercy extends to. And I hope beyond hope that you will see His merciful, nail-pierced hands extended to you today. Not just wanting to pick you up and dust you off, but to adopt you and bring you home as his today. I'm going to ask Nathan and the band to come back up here on stage. 
And I want us to stand. And we're going we're gonna to sing that last song that we closed our worship set with today called Mercy. As we do, I want to invite you to examine your heart. To let the Holy Spirit speak to you. If you're here, if you're not a Christian today, let me just plead with you. Hum- humble yourself today. Be open to what God might want to reveal to you, what he, what he might want to say. I mean, listen, if he doesn't exist, you don't have nothing to lose. But if he does exist, you've got everything to gain. If you are a Christian, I want you to ask yourself this question. Man, have, I, have I allowed this mercy that I claim to trust in? Have I allowed it to ravage my heart, to make me fully and completely new? Am I bleeding out the mercy of God to the world around me? And if not, I want you to ask yourself, what am I holding on to? What am I trying to preserve? What's keeping me from living the life of abandonment that Jesus was willing to live on my behalf? Oh, I hope we can be a church that loves mercy and that demonstrates that mercy to the world around us. But it takes the knowledge of God's mercy in us before that mercy can flow through us. So I want you to stand on your feet. Father, I ask as we we close with a song, as we sing to the glory of your name, would you open our hearts to reveal yourself to us, reveal our own lack, our own need, and yet your amazing provision. Holy Spirit, only you can do a work in our hearts, and I'm inviting you now to come do so. And I'm asking that we would all have a posture of humility, say, Lord, come. Come and confront us. Help us to gaze into the mirror of the gospel and not run from the ugliness that we might see, but to embrace it, to know that even in our ugliness, you have brought us home. You've made us your own. In Jesus' name.